0: Mean Old Lion Media presents the history of being black. What up, though? Welcome to the history of being black podcast. I am Jay Hall, and I am here with a writer, like somebody who I've been reading about for the past couple weeks. Author of "Leaders Like Us," careers in the U.S. military, and "Black Story Matter," the Black Story Matter series. Oh no, I'm reading like I like I can't read. Welcome to the show, JP Miller. Hello to you.
1: Hello, 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 and thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, thank
0: you. Thank you for coming on. How, how are you doing? I see you in the cabin right now. How's everything going?
1: Everything's going great. Uh, we decided to take a little vacation to um, Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Don't know if you've ever been here, but it is is—it's uh, really, really a nice place. Um, you know, the the mountains, it's always rejuvenating for me. The mountains or the beach? Enjoying it. That's good.
0: I... I- you know, it's just a personal thing. This wasn't even a part of what I was going to ask you today. But anytime I see black folks in cabins, I always want to make sure they're doing OK. That's just me. <laughs> you know, That's just me. That's all. You know, so any part during this conversation, please blink twice. And I know it's I, I know what to do. It's all right. It's totally OK. You know, gotcha. if that's your thing. I get it not not a problem (laughs) it it is actually um good having you today because it's so interesting and this is how time works out because i was just having a conversation with a friend well actually we, we we've been saying this repeatedly and repeatedly about how people don't read no more they just they just they just don't they just don't read anymore like we become a society of like headlines and I often wonder, I ask myself, like, well, if the, if the adults aren't reading, you know, how do we get the kids to read, you know? And the fact that you and, the, and your Leaders Like Us series are a series of children's books, is that something that you think about in this time period that we're in now about that? Or is that you just do your thing?
1: I just kind of do my thing and hope that... um Parents will be interested enough. I think I have the support of the school systems and librarians. So um, hopefully when the students go to the library, uh, of course, they'll see my books and become interested. And I always try to write um, stories that will help augment a a child's uh, classroom experience, meaning that. I give them a little bit more information other than particularly like if I write the biographies, I give them a little bit more information of things that they could research. If it, if it you know, becomes uh, part of their curiosity, if they will research and, and find something else to write a book report off of or to uh, to share with their classroom in any way. So I feel like I'm augmenting the classroom. And like I said, I, I really target the educational system so that librarians and media specialists will order the books for, uh, for their schools.
0: Let's take this back for a quick second. Um, you grew up in Asheville, North Carolina. What were books like for you during your time period for yourself?
1: Oh, wow. Uh, we were just talking about that with my family here, uh, a little fireside chat. Uh, and I was born in 1959. Just, you know, put it out there. So the 60s and 70s, you know, schools were still segregated and I felt like the education and things I got, the things that I saw in the library um, were somewhat uh, like me, but of course there weren't really a lot of characters in books, but definitely when schools integrated to go into one of those libraries, um, I did not see books that reflected uh, who I was as, you know, African-American child. So some of the stories that I loved, I'm I'm like an adventure-based person. So I love Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, you know, uh, books. But again, there were no books there that represented my community or me or other people in my church or anything like that. So it was um, it was different growing up in Asheville in the 60s and 70s. And thank goodness, um, some of those things have changed and we really have people that are making um, an effort to make sure that when young people African American black and brown students go in schools today that they see a reflection of themselves. But I, I that's that's not what I saw in the 60s and 70s.
0: When, when it comes to consuming, I'm I'm somebody when I'm watching a movie or when I'm listening to music or if I'm reading a book, I don't always necessarily look for anything as um, relatable. Like I, I don't I don't look for it, I always look at it as a plus. And sometimes I think it's probably because I've been so conditioned, even now, to not necessarily see myself in a vast majority of a lot of things. Like, I don't necess- I know unless I'm going to see like a black film, I'm- the chances of me seeing like representation. And I don't know if that's by choice or if that's just like where I come to. For you, when did you start noticing for yourself that there wasn't any necessarily black characters in your favorite book? So when I think about Huckleberry Finn, and the Black character in there is, is a Black slave. Of course, that's before our time. Mm-hmm. But slavery is like one of the first education we get living here in America, being a Black person.
1: Right. Um, and, and again, I think I was um, it was early on, particularly after um, our the, the Black school that I attended, the elementary school that I attended was closed so that we could go to um, the white schools that, you know, to integrate. Um, I definitely noticed the difference then. And it, and it may have been that the teachers that I had in our neighborhood school were still uh, putting those examples in front of us. Of course, we had black teachers standing in front of us. And, and when we went to integrated schools, we didn't have that. So it may have been that they were even telling us stories about people that, uh, we didn't see in the books, but I never really got that hunger until, um, integration and I didn't see those things. And I, and it just, um, you know, transcended on to adulthood. And then when I started writing, I was like, I know absolutely what I was going to write about, you know, uh, little known, um, history of people and events in African American history, but, I think I, I got that hunger, that drive, probably in the mid nineteen seventies when um, schools were integrated, that I had to make sure that those voices were seen and heard.
0: So just so I have an understanding, before cause you kind of was coming up during that transition of the schools integrating, like you stated, be are you stating that before the schools actually, you know, integrated, you probably got black characters then and then once they were integrated you didn't?
1: Yeah, I believe that had to have been the case because, like I said, I had, um, you know, it was, it was all black school. Uh, it, all of the teachers were African American, and so I think that even uh, from our books, of course, you may not remember this, but you know, the 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 Sally, Dick, and Jane books that we learned from reading. Of course, we didn't see any African American people then. You know, as Spot the Dog, you know that kind of stuff. We we didn't see any African American. Characters in those books, but I do believe that those teachers before us, because I remember, I remember learning the Black National Anthem at that time. That was the first time that you know. So I think that they were feeding us with things uh, other than what was in the the textbooks, you know, from the state of North Carolina that had to been taught. So I think that I didn't get that hunger for it until schools were integrated. And I wasn't being fed that in the classroom. The people that stood before me didn't look like me and the books in the library didn't represent me. So I think that was when the hunger really started.
0: Uh, and the reason I like to ask that question is because there's always been this kind know of about ongoing conversation or debate on whether or not black people themselves were better off during segregation. I don't know necessarily that I can necessarily stand by that, but I wasn't around to actually witness some of the things that we lost. Would that be one of the things would you lean towards and saying like, yo, we lost that because I was getting this information. And then when we integrated, I was not.
1: Yeah. I, 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 I'm like you, I'm, I'm kind of torn because I think there were certain things that came with segregation. I think our community was, uh, was um, more close-knit as a whole. I think that uh, from church and from school, uh, those type institutions, that we were shown and given uh, a lot of things, faith, strength, education-wise. And then, like I said, integration. I started off uh, elementary school, and at that time they didn't have middle school, so it was like fifth grade through eighth grade. and then I went to high school. And of course, the high school was predominantly white as, as well. And I graduated from high school and went to a HBCU. So I uh, attended Tennessee State University. So and then all of a sudden, that was that reversal again. And so here I was with predominantly black um, or African-American professors and instructors and the whole campus and, you know, the whole vibe of the HBCU. So I went from having that in my early life to go into uh, the integration and then going to an HBCU. Um, So I guess I would have to say there's some some pluses and then there's some minuses. I I mean, I think the whole thing about, um, I mean, you look at now like the NAACP image awards that are so important for us to have. I personally would, would rather get an NAACP image award than to get, you know, one of the others, because I'm like, Hey, yo, my people, you know, my, my people acknowledge. (laughs) So things like that, that we had to put in place because we weren't getting acknowledged that were put in place back during um, segregation. Um, I I feel like those things, we definitely still need, so to speak, because if we don't, we won't be, we won't be seen. We won't be recognized the way that I feel like we should. I hope that answered your question.
0: Oh, no, it does. I mean, my grandma, my, my grandma cookies taste way better than somebody else's cookies. I mean, so as far as what award would I rather receive where I'd be more excited to get? I'm with you on that. That's just that's not even a question. Um And I might challenge the other award shows, because if you're saying that this award is supposed to be for everybody, that's where my challenge comes. Right. But I, I don't get mad when a rapper doesn't win a country music award because you're pretty much telling me that this is what this genre is, but anything else, yeah, I challenge you on it, but I'm going to be at my grandma's house receiving these awards and these cookies. If I technically had a choice, that, that, that's just me. That is where I stand on it. You know, we, I went to um, HBCU, I went to Howard and now probably I, I feel just recently in probably like five, six years, there's been a surge of interest in black colleges now. Like everyone's like, oh, whatever, whatever. But can you describe that feeling, what it was during that time where HBCUs were considered somewhat like a hidden gem? Like everybody necessarily, it it was one of those, if you know, you know. What was that experience for you to go from school is being now desegregated and you're having this experience and then you just said, boom, now you're at an HBCU. What was that like for you, those early days?
1: I think, like, I um, I was accepted into Tennessee State in 74, so I, I think that I came in on the tail end of the era where um, African-American families that were encouraging, I, I wouldn't say, maybe we were like the first generation or second generation where the the parents were saying, go to college, I want you to go to college, and so HBCUs were like our first choice because we couldn't, or it was very difficult to get into a PWI. So I think I came in on that era, but um, there was a lot of pride, you know, in going there and being there. And there's a lot of pride even now. Now I think that, that there was a shift um, in the generations after me. I feel like uh, the parents felt like, and, and I think even, I think even like school systems, uh, because, you know, integration had gone on for so long that they were telling the African-American students that, you know, don't go to the the HBCUs, although they weren't called that at that time. Don't go to the HBCUs because your degree is not going to be as relevant you know, in the world, it's not going to mean as much if you go to uh, Tennessee State versus the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. You know what I mean? Um, so I think that started happening. And so people started uh, sending their children there uh, to PWIs. But I think now there's this this pride again, shifting back to the HBCUs. I think that they see that um, that, that the the degrees, Coming from HBCUs, the people with those degrees, are, they're, you know, I mean, look, we, the vice president of the United States <laughs> went to an HBCU. So they see that it doesn't matter what school that you went to. So I think a lot of these people are coming back. And I'll put a plug in. Um, <laughs> I, I do have a book that's about to come out in the fall of 20, 2023, this, this fall. And it is a part of a series called Travel to, and so this one is Travel to HBCUs, and so I was able to weave in about uh, probably about twenty twenty five HBCUs. So I had it in categories um, like uh, civil rights um, it, schools that were very important to the civil rights movement, uh, schools that were very good in sports um, and then after each school I listed like two celebrities, a male and a female that graduated from uh, that HBCU so I'm excited about that to help with that um, that uh, you know transformation you know going back to HBCU so I'm really excited about that.
0: Oh yeah, I just want to note. I do not want to cut you off, but you're right. I remember when I was coming to high school, there were teachers, administrators telling us that, you know, you don't, they would say it in coded words. The world just ain't black. So you don't want to just go to it because the world just ain't black, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, I look back on that now, I'm like, well, the world just ain't white. You know, why nobody's saying that as far as the world? You know, the world just isn't white, you know? But they were saying those things. And you're right, there was this attitude amongst us because we drank the Kool-Aid several times, that our degree wasn't going to be as good. It wasn't going to hold no weight. You were only going to go so far when it came to your people, and you are—that is a fact. And it was administrative people who were quote-unquote credible, you know, saying that, and parents were believing it because there's always been this attitude that was the, quote, white ice is colder. You know, it just kind of always, you know, been that thing. When you were coming up, I also saw that you enrolled in the military and you're a Desert Storm veteran. I mean, I think about that. I'm like, I remember when Desert Storm happened because, you know, I was in school and how we were. What was that experience like from you? I mean, you're going from a black college. You're having this surge of pride and then boom, there's a war. And yes, yeah, easy to look back on it now and say it wasn't as whatever, whatever. But in that time, you're going from this to that, what is that extreme experience for you? <laughs>
1: that was uh, that is definitely one experience in my life that I will definitely remember. And in some aspects, I'll definitely cherish. Now I'll go back to even going into the military, I was in the Air Force, I joined the Air Force. Um, A few years after I graduated, I was, you know, trying to find a job. My dad is a minister, and so we lived in Gaffney, South Carolina, uh, where his church was. And I couldn't find a job after I graduated from college, so I did some substitution um, in the school system there, and then I finally decided to go in the military. Now I will say. And I'm sure there were people before me that paved the way for me, but the military was probably the most diverse uh, institution that I had gone to at that point in my life. So I saw people from, you know, all walks of life that was, you know, in the military. There were Asians, there were Native Americans, there were um, Filipinos, which I guess still fit in that Asian uh, Uh, Pacific category, but it was the most diverse uh, group of people that I'd ever uh, dealt with now when I went to Desert Storm, of course, I was afraid because, you know, first of all, I didn't sign up to go to war. I went in the military so I could get my master's degree. <laughs> so I yeah, that's, that's be that's be <laughs> yeah, Let's be clear. Let's be clear. That whole war thing, I was like, okay, I'm over it now. i will just <laughs> uh, But anyway, um, you know, I went. is like, the, ink? the ink dry yet? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I was going to Pull a cleaner or something from Mash, you know. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, it was it was it was really an interesting experience, and I had some. I, I bonded with some people because you never, you know, at that time we didn't know how we were going to come back. You know, body bag, injured, whatever, because we didn't know how the war would escalate. Um, so I had some really good friends because we had some very um intimate moments and sharing you know things that we probably would never would have shared with someone um you know outside of that so that whole experience even though it was you know the war the war and wartime situation um I, it's probably uh, mostly fond memories uh more than anything but it was a fearful time for me as well but yeah, I love the I love the military. I love the Air Force. I still volunteer with veterans groups and things like that. So yeah, I, I
0: asked that because the one thing when I was reading about you that strikes out to me is your transitions. And I always think about somebody's transition and what that experience does. You went from being in the you know black like you said environment of schools, and then they integrated. Then you're like, okay, boom, whiteness. Then you're like going to this black college, like, all right, cool, blackness. Now you about to go work for the quote unquote, for the man and you're in the military, but then you're going off to war. That is a big thing because you're right not to me people are going into the military for war they're, they're going they're thinking about how they are gonna take care of themselves and they try to get mm-hmm. some degree and everything else that the commercial said that they're going to do you're not thinking <laughs> about what especially during that period of time i can remember a little bit you know it was kind of a peaceful time nobody was thinking at least we didn't really think it was like something about to jump off any moment and then you go there but then also read, you become a director of youth programs mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: How does that happen? So so my degree from Tennessee State was in Recreation Administration. So that was sort of played into that. And, you know, I have two loves of my heart. And that's children and the elderly. So I've put more emphasis on children uh, because I feel like, um, you know, pouring something into them, something about my experience, my education or whatever that may help them navigate life a little easier. And so um, I, you know, uh, as a civilian, I went into a program, uh, it's called Palace Acquire, where they kind of uh, set you up for management. So you had to, I had to, I was in Las Vegas at this time when I went through that program. And once I finished that program of going through all the recreation of, um, um facilities in uh, the Air Force, then they assigned me a youth center. And so my first base was Dias Air Force Base in um, Abilene, Texas. So it was like, I I love working with kids because I get to be a kid. You know, we were talking this morning and uh, my sister was saying, um, I think the question was sort of like, um, if you could, if you could describe yourself, who you are, in the age that you feel, what would it be, you know? And I'm like, I'd probably be one of those kids, you know? I'm mischievous. I I love to to do pranks, you know, things like that. Everything a kid would be just wrapped up in this 60 plus year old body, you know? So I just really get along with them and relate to them and uh, love sharing things, um, new things and seeing their eyes brighten, you know, when they hear or, or learn something new. And uh, that's just what I, you know, what I pride for. That's that's what I live my life for.
0: So I'm with you because you and I we both went to a black college, and two, I was also a youth concert for ten years of my life. Oh. And yeah, and so kids, (laughs) they are an experience within themselves. When you work in, and I'm just speaking plainly, we are when you working with other people's children. (laughs) <laughs> that That is an experience <laughs> because I like to say there are um, a few challenges. There's the, the parents, there's the kid, and then there's the system. And you're going to deal with one of those three things or if not all three of those things on a daily basis. You ain't going to get out the door without working on at least... Now, in my life, I was working at two. Now, you were a director, so you probably did. I ain't trying to speak for you, but I can probably guess you probably worked on all three of those every single day of your life. Does... Having that experience working in the U program, did that contribute to your writing as far as you saying, I'm, I need to speak to children?
1: Yes, because, you know, one of the things um, I think, of course, it started in the 80s, but it really didn't get popular till like in the 90s was the the um, African-American or Black History Week. You know, it started off as a, it maybe even started off as a day, but I think it started off as a week. I remember it specifically um, uh, more as a week, and it was like that one week in February that um, on the basis, by that time I was, you know, working in the in the government with the Air Force, and, and it would generally only be, uh, you know, Martin Luther King and Harriet Tubman and George Washington Carver, maybe a book to Washington, you know, that the people would talk about. And I was like, but we're so much more. You know, um, so I think that that all helped uh, to me to decide, too, that there was more that needed to be told because the same people were being discussed year after year after year for our Black History Week. And then when it went into the month, you know, it was just a whole month of talking about Martin Luther King, Booker T. Washington, Frederick Douglass, you know. So it's like there's so much more. And I have introduced So many people that even my editors have been scratching their head. They're like, wow, really? And that's why I say one of the things that I always say is that black people have contributed more to make America great (laughs) than what people realize or even want to realize, which is why they're trying to block it, (laughs) you know, because they don't want it to be known. If the truth be told, America is ours, <laughs> you know, because of, because of the things that, you know, I mean, when you had individuals out in a field, um, you know, uh, hoeing to, to, to sow potatoes and whatever else, and they, and they invented, you know, what a hoe was, or they invented what, you know, a cotton gin, you know, <laughs> that we didn't get credit for and other things. It's like, with our hands and our minds to make our work easier, we invented things, but other people got the credit for it. And so now I'm just like, you know, I'm just spitting out these people, and, and the editors are like, oh yeah, oh we've got to work that one in. The next round, the leaders like us, we we definitely have to work that one in, you know. So that's that's all I, you know, that's what I want, and yeah. But it stemmed from, you know, even being in the military, working in youth programs and uh, African-American history week or month. It was just certain people being discussed. And I wanted that to be uh, broadened.
0: You know, what I'm liking about you is that you seem to arrive during these transitional periods where you're like, Hey, I showed up and now this is a new thing that is happening. Like you said, the transition between integration and the transition of going from Black History Week to Black History Month. And I remember as a kid and even as a child, we were feeling exhausted by doing the coloring books of just MLK, Rosa Parks, and Frederick Douglass, right? Everybody looking for the gray crayon to do Frederick Douglass hair. Like, it, it was the same characters. What What is it that make just these certain Black characters qualify?
1: That's a good question. It really is. Um, and I'm not quite sure how to answer that one. You know, because when you look at it, um, a person like a Martin Luther King, you know, during his time, you know he he was number 1 he was america's number one enemy and and even to a certain degree from our own community and it's like i don't know what what made him stand out or a rosa parks stand out so that they would be the chosen people in african american history for these people to be proud of and and discuss um, yeah, I, I can't, I can't, I really don't. That That's a good question. <laughs> that's a really good yeah, question. Yeah. And
0: I, and I have to tell you, I feel depending on where you grew up, you might've got that one bonus black person if they were in your neighborhood or what they did happen, it affected your town directly. Like for an example, I grew up in Detroit and a lot of people don't know this, but Rosa Parks was living in Detroit and she was actually living in my neighborhood. Like I'm from a block called 12th street and they actually renamed that Rosa Parks Boulevard. So when I tell you I grew up knowing so much about Rosa Parks or hearing that story repeated again, probably than the average person, it was just in our DNA because she was in the city at the time when we were coming up as kids. But anything outside of that, it took those special teachers to kind of fill in the gaps. And the, the first thing that stood out to me when I saw your Leaders Like Us series, the very first individual that stood out to me was Bay Yard Rustic. When I saw you wrote about him for children, I was like, wait, wait, pause, like, (laughs) because I always feel a certain amount of guilt when I find out about a civil rights leader who had been around forever, and I'm just discovering them. It it was someone uh, a few years ago, and I can't remember his name at this moment, but when he passed away, and to find out he had been around with King and everything, and I didn't know about him until he passed. Bayard Rustin is one of those individuals, I didn't find out about him until, like, in college, And to find how much of a part, a role he played is a significant part of our history. And to read that because of his sexuality, he was kept in the background. How do you as a writer step up to that challenge and the fact that it's for children? How do you step up to that challenge? How do you make, how do you communicate that?
1: You know, I think now that things are, I think things are so different and that editors are really like um looking for this and 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 I'll say this is all I think it's it's all a part of unfortunately the, the aftermath of the George Floyd murder that the um editors and publishing have been become so um agreeable in writing certain things about uh, uh, the African-American life. Because after that, you know, it was like everything came out. It was like, there, you know, there are not any African-Americans on the such and such board. And there are not any African-Americans in this level of of publishing. And there's not any African-Americans in this level of whatever. And our stories are not being heard. So this is the thing that was coming out in publishing. It's like, uh, our stories are not being heard, and even when we would come up with a story, then uh, they the, it, there would be a certain way that they would uh, kind of whitewash it to maneuver it to get it to sound uh, you know better in their eyes. But you know, at this point, we got to say no. This is the story. This is how. This is his life. This is her life, or this is this event, and we want to tell it like it is because. Uh, initially they would, you know, in publishing, they say, Oh, we want diverse books. We want diverse authors. And then when they would get them, then, you know, you get that red edit line. Ah, oh, I think that might be too difficult for kids to, you know, understand. Or I think that, might. but after that and the, the George Floyd murders and other things become started to roll and the African American, um, way, I guess the pendulum started to swing in our way. So we were we were able to, uh, you know, just say, hey, this is a story I would like Philip to, to write and this is why and blah, 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 blah. And I think part of that too was um, with Bayard Rustin, I think that they didn't want, uh, and I say they, I don't know who they are in this sense, but people didn't want uh, his contributions to overshadow. Martin Luther King, because it actually, it actually could, to be honest, if if he was really given all the credit that, that he's earned from, uh, I mean, even the philosophy of nonviolence and Gandhi and all of that, Martin Luther King would never have known about it had it not been for Bayard Rustin. And so those are the main things that, you know, he's. Stood for Martin Luther King. You, you know, you hear him, he was nonviolent and, and, uh, Gandhi was his mentor, da, 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 da. But all of that came from Bayard Rustin. So in a sense, it may not, they may not have wanted it to be out because it would have overshadowed Martin Luther King. And the fact that he was a gay man is still, you know, uh, not as taboo as it used to be, but it's still, uh, a little taboo that this person would, uh, you know, would have that much. Um, insight and guidance into the whole Martin Luther King civil rights era. So,
0: Yeah, that's why I ask because it, and thank you for saying that that word that I have to repeat or that sentence I have to repeat. Not as taboo as it used to be, but it is still taboo. Like it is still a challenge to get certain voices out there depending on who you are and what your livelihood is. It is still a challenge out there. And I, I, I remember you said earlier, you recognize that there were people who came before you that made your military experience, you know, diverse. Who would you say when it came to writing that you feel like paved the way for you specifically to be where you are when it comes to the writing thing or where you already a writer and someone said to you, you need to be writing books because you're always writing, which, which one, which decision was it for you?
1: <laughs> Let's see. I, I would say I had uh, really two, Probably two ladies, three. Let me start. Let me start with my mom. So my mom likes to write um, poetry, and um, I grew up listening to her poetry. And uh, my dad was in like gospel groups, and I remember her doing their anniversary. She would um, weave in the songs of some of the popular songs that they would sing into their anniversary notes to you know to describe them from the day they started to whatever anniversary it was. So I used to really like, you know, tie into that. Uh, and then um, Victoria Christopher Murray, I don't know if you know her, she's, uh, she's a popular, um, she's been labeled as Christian fiction, um, but she's a popular uh, author. And before I really knew anything about writing for children, I just started writing. And so I would go to her workshops and she edited uh, one of my first books. Um, and so she was like, hey, you got this storytelling thing down pat, you know, you need to, you know, give me encouragement. And She pushed me. And the third person is uh, Gwendolyn Hooks. She, uh, not Gwendolyn Hooks, um, yeah, Gwendolyn Hooks. Um, she is a um, NAACP image award winner for children's picture books. Um, Tiny Stitches was the the book that she wrote, and she was the one that really opened the door for me to get to where I am right now. She gave my my name as a recommendation to uh, Carson DeLosa, who is the publisher for the Leaders Like Us, and it was for Leaders Like Us. Actually, that was the second one. The first one that she did uh, was for Black Stories Matter with Hachette, so she recommended me and that was actually published in uh, Great Britain, the Black Stories Matter. And then the rights were late, later sold um, to a publisher, uh, Crabtree, here in the United States. And so those three individuals, I think, are the ones that kind of, you know push me to continue to write. I used to do things in high school, you know, like if they told me to write a hundred times, I will, you know, sorry, I was late for class or I will not be late. I always turned it into a story, you know, so (laughs) so that, you know, people, uh, teachers that didn't stifle me because, you know, one teacher in particular, Mr. Livingston, you know, he he did not say, Janice, this is not what I asked for. I want you to write a hundred times. I will not be late for class. Uh, he would say, oh, this is very interesting. And he said, huh, uh, you know, because I'd leave it at the climax, Huh, I wouldn't mind hearing the, the, the rest of this story. I would say, really? So I'd be late for class the next day. So, <laughs> so uh, those are the people that I could probably say that influenced me for writing.
0: How do you go about choosing your characters? Because the one thing, there are several things I like about the Leaders Like Us series, but one thing I noticed is that you're, 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 ele- you're putting a spotlight, spotlight on black leadership today and in the past. Mm-hmm. So how do you go about selecting who's going to be the next one you're going to you know talk
1: about? It's just, you know, I say it's more spirit led, uh, because I'm always, I'm always, always looking for a story. Um, I just ran in the Selma to Montgomery uh, relay and I came back with this story and I'm just, it's like burning on the inside of me to get out. I'm not going to tell you about it, but anyway, it's just like, ready to come out. So I'm always, if I'm watching TV and I'm a nerd, I love watching documentaries. So if I'm watching TV or documentaries, or I see a billboard or the preacher says something in church, I'm like taking notes on my phone. So I have a list of, I don't know how many people that I would write stories about. And again, I want to get those stories about people that that nobody has ever heard. I want it to be an aha moment for me. And so when it's an aha moment for me, I know it's going to be an aha moment for other people and especially children. So, um, I usually like do a collection and I, tr- and I do try to get some, uh, from like the 1800s or, you know, or so. And then I try to get someone today, like a Kathy Hughes. Uh, you know, they're this, this still living, Henry Louis Gates, and then I'll go like to the 60s and 70s uh, for someone that's like, that was in the throw of the whole civil rights and, you know, anything in between. So I kind of have a, you know, a pecking order like um, they have in the past. I've done the contracts have been like for four, six, or eight at a time. So when I do it, especially that larger group, then I definitely make sure that it's these people in you know certain uh, eras, just so you can see, you know, like you have to look back and see, you know, where we came from and who started the struggle. The struggle didn't, you know, it just didn't start in the in the '70s or the '50s or '60s. We had people that was doing things in the eighteen hundreds, you know, that were doing things to to help us to get to where we are today. So
0: yeah, because the thing about when it comes to black history in your selection process, it reminds me of listening to a playlist of like track eight or nine that are not like the hit records. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's Biggie Juicy, but then there's like track three. And that's what reminds me when I see that you wrote about Rebecca Lee Crumpler. And I was just doing research and I, I just discovered her probably like a month ago, just as an, as, as an adult man. And the gift that you're giving a youth to know about the first black woman doctor in medicine. And it's one of those things that I wouldn't even think to Google because of how I've been conditioned and how I came up. I have to be intentional about my history at this, at this point in my life. But the great thing about someone that's a child that's getting that, they don't have to go through some of the deconstructing, I would say mentally, that I have to go through. You're giving this gem to them early. And with someone like Kathy Hughes, again, if you live in D.C., Kathy Hughes, you may hear about all the time. You go to another state, you may not know Kathy Hughes. So to know that she's alive and she's present, that is, I mean, those, those are two things I can think of that is a gift to a child. What has been your... I would say like a challenge for you when you're trying to tell these stories, these unique black stories?
1: Um, some of them is uh, limited uh, resources. So I usually, um, they have, with Carson DeLuca. you have to have like 10 sources, replicable sources. And um, so some of them is finding the sources, like Re- with uh, Rebecca Crumpler, They had her mixed up a lot with uh, Mary Malone, so I had to be very careful to make sure that. And and Mary Malone was the first um, African American nurse, I think it was, to um, get a degree in nursing. And so they, you would Google, and it would say Rebecca, uh, Dr. Rebecca Rebecca Crumpler, but it would have a picture of Mary Malone. The reason I knew that is because I had done research on Mary Malone, like very. Uh, Several, several years ago, but the average person would not have known that. And so even with her, we didn't even find a picture uh, of her. So they left that up to the illustrator to come up with a picture. So I think the research in some cases, some people, there's all sorts of research. Others, there's not. I like to go to um, newspaper.com because I have, you know, I have a, a subscription with them and I like them because they have the articles when the person was in the throw of their life, you know, for the most part. Now, some in the 1800s, you know, you may not find that many things, but I have found some articles about people uh, during that time frame. So I like to make sure that my sources are replicable and that what I'm giving to uh, the students and the young readers is they can take it to the bank. You know, um, I'll tell you a story real quick about uh, when I was doing Black Stories Matter. And I found an article that seemed so like this, this has got to be true. And I started writing it as it was true. So there was a a person allegedly had found the gold medal that Martin Luther King, I'm sorry, (laughs) the gold medal that Muhammad Ali had thrown into the Ohio River. And allegedly it was this, you know, Conservation group that had a a, a a river cleanup, and he had a metal detector. He found it. He took it to the Martin with uh, the uh, Muhammad Ali Center. The family gave him this. You know, uh, no, he took it to Indiana, Indiana to get it appraised, and he named a place. And it was it was the authentic gold medal, and that uh, he was um, uh, compensated by the family, and all of this other stuff. And I was like, wow. And then I called the the uh, Muhammad Ali Center and they was like, no, no, no. And I said, let me Google this place that they allegedly got it appraised. No such place, you know. So I had to take all of that out because it wasn't true. And whereas it, it fits so well into my story, I had to take that part out of the story because it wasn't true, you know. So you have to, I have to make so many, I have to check, double check. Sources. I think that's the probably the biggest challenge in all of it.
0: Yeah, especially living in today's era where there's so much information out. Because a lot of the docu- people who were documenting our history, they didn't look like us. So we also got to go by this interpretation, and a lot of times it was it was a white interpretation of our history. In your research, when you're trying to tell these stories. How how do you navigate in between that when you can see something you're like mm, now, even if it's the 1800s or just something that's early 1900s, like an example would be like Bayard Rustin, who when I first started doing research on him when I was in college, the information was limited. Now you can go because the conversation has been had and it's almost like it's everywhere. But there was a time when the information was limited. And I remember that distinctly. How are you able to Crack that code, go in between and find out what's real or not.
1: Yeah, like I said, it's just um, double checking. Um, you know, you have, we have primary sources and secondary sources. And of course, primary is if I'm able to find an actual, um, maybe like a speech or an interview or something like that. And then secondary is, uh, you know, word of mouth. Someone else says in a article or what have you that this is what was said. So sometimes you have to, you know, you have to go with what you have and, and work with it. But there have been times when I've, I've just stumbled across a nugget and I'm like, Oh, okay. You know, that'll, that'll work. I, you know, and I'm excited because I found that piece and I can go with it on that. I don't have any specifics to come to mind, but, um, there have been those opportunities that, like I said, I do love newspaper.com because it really it really does have it in the in the throw of the person's life for the most part, and that's that's a lot of my nuggets. It's like okay, yeah, I'll go and I'll get this article, and uh, I can have you know quotes because you know if you like sometimes when you Google someone like you Google a Bayard Rustin or a Martin Luther King, and it will have um, you know the basic quotes that you hear all the time, every time. And so if I want to give them something more. And so from newspaper.com and those articles, I'm able to give even a different um, quote, you know, or a different scenario of their life that someone else may not, you know. And that, that's the part that like, I, I really try to pride myself on. It's not only it's a hidden gem, but to find a hidden gem within the gem to, to talk about their life.
0: You, you know, we start off this conversation about how people don't read. And so as a writer, I have to ask you this. I really do. How do we encourage youth to read when the adults don't seem to be reading themselves?
1: <laughs> that's, Take that's, your time. That's a million-dollar <laughs> million question right there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, other than um, just... Just letting them know how much more they can learn by reading, you know? I mean, even when I I, I even have um, a regiment myself that, you know, I'll read a book, we, we call them mentor text. So if I'm thinking about writing a book about a certain thing or in a certain style, I'll go to the library or download a book, uh, by an author that's similar. And so I'll read that book and then it'll, you know, help me inspire. Not that I'm reading it to copy it, but as a mentor text. So I'll read a mentor text. I'll read something inspirational and then I'll read like one of my favorite, you know, authors, you know, and novels. And, and I just rotate through that all year long. And I just, you know, I just like the places that it takes me, you know, from, from reading. And so if we could just, let everybody know or let children know or let adults know. It's not really this time consuming thing, you know, because you look at how much time we spend on our phones and looking at Instagram and TikTok, you know, you could have read a whole chapter, you know, in in that time frame. So I, I have no idea why people dislike and it's you know it's almost not you know we say that a lot of times that it's you know black people don't like to read If you if you want to if you want to uh keep something from a black person put it in a book but i don't think it's just, and
0: that quote that quote is not black person but i'm gonna let you go with that <laughs> yeah i'm gonna yeah. let you have it it's okay right right, right, go, right, ahead. right. go ahead go ahead yeah. totally yeah. fine yeah.
1: <laughs> but it's not it's, it's not really just black people that don't want to read or don't like to read it's, it's a, a lot of people, all people, the majority of people just don't like to read for whatever reason. Maybe they don't like that quiet time with themselves or something. I don't know. But that's the million dollar question. You're going to have to ask, ask your next next guest that and let me see. <laughs> let me hear what they No, mean.
0: I. So, uh, you know, I, I ask everybody because for myself and everything that you're saying, it makes perfect sense to me. I'm a writer. You know, and or I've been doing this for a long time. Like literally, when someone tells me something, I automatically like I just wrote down newspaper.com. I'm probably gonna geek out about it. That's just who I am. And and I also remember just in basic high school or in basic middle school where my teacher would be like, You gotta have five or, and, and you, you're work cited. It just seems as if the work cited is gone, you know. And I'll have adults to mentees who will say something to me and they'll read something and I'll just be like, Well, did you read it, the whole thing? You know, did you, did you, the, the thing that you're sharing with me, did you read the whole thing? I'm not about to get into whether or not it was real or not, but did you read past the headline? And it, all, it just feels like nobody is reading past the headline, which is why I, I, I really love the idea of Leaders Like a series. Like, I really loved it because it is digestible and you're planting seeds in kids extremely early and you're making it fun for them. And, you know, you're talking about Gabby Douglas. Like, these things didn't just, Happened hundreds of years ago, but we do live in a time span now where five years ago almost feels like fifty years ago now, because things are coming at us so fast. So I like the fact that you're placing time capsules. Like, no, 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 we're not going to skip past what Gabby Douglas done, and we're gonna we're gonna te- we're gonna start documenting this right now. We're gonna we're not gonna leave it up to others. So I, I, I love that you're doing that. How do you feel? Because you mentioned it, and I was going to bring it to it, but you mentioned it. How do you feel about the fact that they're trying to ban so many books and they're trying to hit it with the woke tag? Like, I saw AOC when she made that speech about how they're trying to ban the life of Rosa Parks book, Republicans are, and, and not a, necessarily trying to come from a political standpoint, but the fact that they're trying to ban books. Mm-hmm. You, you as a writer, as an author, you hear that. Don't that sound like something they were doing back in, like, World War One or the 1800s? Like, What is that about from your perspective?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, from my perspective, uh, and I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but uh, there's uh, two of the books in the Black Stories Matter that has been banned um, in Florida and parts of Texas. So, you know, part of me are proud. I'm like, hey, my books got banned, you know, because this information that they don't want to be out there, but, you know, and hopefully that'll drive people really to go get it more. But, you know, it's it's that same old thing. It's like um, just trying to erase our history, trying to erase us, trying to make um, us as African Americans feel um, like second class citizens. They've always had the handle. And when I say they this time, I mean the majority, they've always had the the handle and the upper hand over all of the minority groups, African Americans uh more specifically. and so now that these stories are getting out that they're seeing that we've done great things that we are part of this uh, thing that made America great, they don't want that to be known because that those have been the things. Um, that's held us back in the past is because they didn't let us know and we didn't read or no one told us what we were doing and what we were contributing. And so therefore they could still say that, you know, you are only worth this or you are only worth that because you haven't done whatever. So I think that's what the whole band is all about. And the Black Stories Matter, we hadn't really talked about that much, Um, but there were so many things that came to light with me when I was doing the research and writing the Black Stories Matter series. Um, Again, it was for uh, Hachette UK uh, that I wrote it. And so they wanted stories about uh, people of African diaspora from all over the world. And so I might be writing about somebody from uh, Jamaica or Trinidad or United States or Canada. And I learned so many things, you know, like uh, when You know, we thought that, you know, the people that were enslaved would uh, escape and run to Canada, that they had all of this freedom and it was, you know, but they had an organization there that was similar to the NAACP. You know, it's like, oh, who knew? I I never knew that. And at the same time, our bus boycott was going on in America. There was also a bus boycott going on in the UK that Martin Luther King went over and some aspects helped them to you know, get that together. And it was this, this connectivity that I never really realized because we're always so compartmentalized as African-Americans here thinking that we're the only ones that went through things. But here was people in, you know, countries all, you know, all over of African diaspora that went through the same things that we were going through. Um, and so I think that even that's why part of, uh, part of all of um uh, the Black Stories Matter series has been banned, is because they don't want us to know this, and and they want us to feel like we're the only ones in this situation, and not learn from this segment of people or that segment of people, you know. Um, but I think that's the main thing: is they're banning books because they don't want they don't want us to know. They want us to keep they want to keep us in this uh, this darkness that for many years we allowed, and now we're fighting back.
0: So I, I just have one uh, last question. And it's, and it's about your the Black Stories Matter series. There seems to be, it it it's not new to me, but every five or six years, there's always this conversation. And it seems to come from people that look like us Black people, where they want to feel like they don't want to be called a Black writer. They don't want to be called a Black actor. They don't want to be called that they do Black movies. Why are we having a Black History Month? It should be celebrated all year. You don't have to put me in this box. And here you are writing "Black Stories Matter" in that sense, right? What would you say is the importance of having the black in the title?
1: Um, it is who it is, and our stories matter. You know, um, I, don't, I don't have any of the names in front of me, but you know, there were there were there were people that were doing like great things in all countries, and these stories deserve to to be heard. You know, uh, from Country to country, they deserve to be heard. They deserve to be known. Now, as to why, uh, we don't necessarily want the name Black or African American to be in anything, I think we can look at it and the, we could go back like to the 60s and 70s when we had, well, even before that, the 1800s, because most of our, um, most of our HBCUs, all of them really were, uh, established because we couldn't get into uh, the PWIs. Um, so a lot of them were land grants, and that's great. They gave us that opportunity, and I think when we got to a certain uh, time in our life, people felt like we didn't need that anymore or to say that it was uh, easier to um, to 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 find you in a crowd to say that you graduated from this school or this was you got this award and i think we we went from needing this to feeling like and it may be something that the majority taught us is that again uh well you know don't don't you know don't don't get uh typecast i guess you could say as only being able to write a black story or only being able to do this or be, be able to do that. So we went for a while not wanting that. But I think now, I think again, I think we're navigating back to that. Uh, you have a lot of people that are proud to say, yeah, you know, I, I think Toni Morrison <laughs> in one of the interviews, um, they were asking her, well, you know, why do you only write about? black characters and black stories and this that and the other and you could tell she was offended and she uh, turned it back on the uh, the interviewer and she was like, is this something that you would ask Steven Spielberg, Spielberg, is this something that you would ask him, why did he only write about white characters or, you know, and so I think that we're, we're, we're coming back to that pride and being able to say, yeah, okay, I write, I, I'm a black author that write black stories, you know. That's where I see it. I hope that's the it is, <laughs> you
0: know. Well, you were the winner of the 2021 Black Authors Matter Award, sponsored by the National Black Book Festival. So congratulations to your Black self in that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. you take those grandma cookies. That's how I see it, personally. Mm-hmm. JP Miller, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. I've, I've learned like so much today and I can't wait to kind of go back on some of the nuggets that you, gems that you dropped and go back and learn more about it in my journey. Thank you so much for coming up. Is there anything that we need to be checking for in your direction that we can help with?
1: Um, I, like, I, like I said, I have the HBCU, uh, book coming out in uh, fall. So I would love to come on, talk to you about that. Uh, one of my traditional publishing uh, projects will come out in the uh, spring of 2024. This one is called, I can talk about it, it's called The Ghost of Freedom. And I write about the first freedom march in America, where it was actually uh, Igbo, uh, the people from the Igbo tribe that had been uh, taken from uh, the Nigeria area brought to St. Simon's Island in uh, in Georgia. And rather than to go into slavery, they walked into uh, the creek with uh, shackles and they drowned. So they consider that to be the first freedom march in America. So uh, it's called uh, Ghost of Freedom, Remembering Ebo's Landing. And that will come out in the spring. So I would love to come back and talk to you about those projects uh, when they do, or anytime, if you need me, just, Send me an email or give me a call.
0: Well, first of all, what is your social media so everyone can follow? Do you have any of those so we can follow you and be on point with what you're yeah. about to drop? Uh,
1: I am on Twitter at JP Miller Writer. I am on Facebook, which really probably Instagram and Facebook is where I, I really check most, uh, and that's uh, Janice it's at Janice JP Miller on Instagram, and then uh, Facebook is just Janice J.P. Miller, so you can look me up, uh, send me a friend request, or follow me, and I'll be more than happy to um, to accept and, and hopefully, um, you know, get some new followers and uh, share the stories of little-known uh, events and people in African American history.
0: No, um, in case you didn't know, yeah, you are a invited guest um, throughout. So if there's anything that we're going to need, trust me, you're going to hear from us because we like to say when you first come on here, it's a revolving door. So, yes, please feel free to come back, especially if you want to talk about something specifically, because I would have loved to have you on when they first were talking about Bandy's Bus because we need to hear more. I like to say we need to hear from people who actually do the work. Like We need you and your voices heard because there's so many voices out there that do not know what they're talking about. So we need those who actually do the work to speak. So yes, please come back anytime and let us know so we can be enlightened. Now, I, I appreciate you. This has been a great episode of History Being Black. Make sure you find all our episodes everywhere where you can listen to our podcast. We're on Spotify, Apple Music, and all of those things. Make sure you hit us up on History Being Black on Instagram. Make sure you follow me at j Society on all social media platforms. Be blessed, most successful, and we will talk to you soon. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcasts. Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at The History of Being Black. Follow the Mean Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O'Line Media. Get the Mean Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean Line Media production.